I really was trying to distill down what is the message I want to get across to them. And the message I wanted to get across to them is that I want them to be unstoppable at going after their dreams. I want them to persist. I want them to never give up on what truly makes their hearts sing. All right, I, I have a confession to make. I've had some pretty special people on the show. I mean, I've, I've had a concert on the show from a rock star. We've chatted with, with a couple guys who caught touchdown passes from Peyton Manning. I've had someone on here who's got a World Cup winning goal. Founding astronauts have been on here. But this is the first time I've had a platoon commander, and not just any platoon commander, but someone who had asthma as a kid. All right. Yeah, Alden Mills, first of all, it's great to see you, my man. Like, you're one of my favorite people, for real. Like, you meet people, and, like, in the first three minutes, like, you brought me at ease. I was nervous to meet you. And we had an awesome time in San Francisco when we actually had that sit-down. How are you doing? I'm doing great. And, by the way, it's a mutual admiration club here. I love reading all those emails you send out about courage. And I love what you do. So, it's just... It's great to be here today, Ryan. And I hope I'm not polluting your inbox. Keep me honest. You're the platoon commander. No, no. I think it's just the right amount, honestly. And right. I like how you get right to the point. I find them helpful for me. You know, I'm, I'm constantly learning new things. And you're on my short list of emails that I read. So I want to do you proper and make sure I set this up the right way. And I love this line that you have on your website. So Guilty, I'm going to start there. So you, you say you're on a mission to help 100 million people be unstoppable. And mm-hmm. I mean, I want to have a real conversation today, you know, but I kind of feel like, like what, like how did you land on unstoppable for you? And, and maybe we can even reverse engineer this a little bit. How do you go from a, a kid with asthma to like Navy SEAL seven years? Was it, were you seven years as a platoon commander? Is that right? Yeah. All right, get, get me there. Let's hear that. How did this happen? So do we want to, are we going to, do you want to go to how I got to Unstoppable first? Or do you want to get to the platoon commander piece? I know this is typical. This is, this is like what you do is help people be clear. Let's start with Unstoppable. Because that's actually, <clears throat> I've actually never been asked that question before. And I have a really good response to it. It took me a really long time to get there. And the way I got there, it started in 2002 when a good friend of mine, Neil Roberts, was the first Navy SEAL to die in Afghanistan. And it was sad, obviously, to lose Neil and how heroic he was on his death in Afghanistan. But the piece that really motivated me into action was... I knew that Neil had written a just-in-case letter, and I knew that an 18-month-old boy was going to get that letter. And a just-in-case letter, for everybody listening, is when you have to go into harm's way, you go out on deployment, you create a letter that could be the last piece of written communication your loved ones, your next of kin would get. And I had written three of those letters, But my next of kin back then was my mom, my dad, and my brother. 
I wasn't writing it from a father perspective. And the reason I bring that piece up is that that set a cascading series of events for me. My wife at the time of Neil's death was pregnant with our first child. And so I got this idea of like, well, I'm going to go through that. I want to write a letter to my unborn son. And so my first son, Henry, born in 2003, I wrote the letter and it was a bad letter. It was a bunch of do this, don't do that, you know, stupid things like, hey, don't pee in a fence or electric fence or in a fan, you know, because boys do stupid stuff. Uh, and then I would kind of sprinkle in between the humor some really important nuggets that I thought he should take away. And then I didn't think much of the letter until Charlie came around two years later and I wrote that letter. It got a little better, not great. And then I wrote another one to John two years after that. And then I finally wrote another one to William in 2009. I've got four boys. And through all of that, I really was trying to distill down what is the message I want to get across to them. And the message I wanted to get across to them is that I want them to be unstoppable at going after their dreams. I want them to persist. I want them to never give up on what truly makes their hearts sing. Man. And that's how I came up with it. I love that. I, there's so much to take away from that. First of all, you know, I'm a, I mean, I'm so not like you in so many ways. Like, I, I mean, that I, we're alike in a lot of ways, but like, I always joke when you the, when you think of the portrait of courage, like one of my very first slides that I show is like, is this what you pictured? Like a middle-aged, you know, a little too much body fat, <laughs> pale white guy. I'm like, I've never, I've, you know, I've never been to Mars. I've never gone to, I've never taken a bullet. I've never, I've, I've yet to get in a knife fight. Like in some ways I'm so not courageous. I haven't even gotten a tattoo. I can't even decide which one I would want to get. You know, but but I well, I you got it. some cool emblems behind you. I'd start with maybe that emblem. No, that's the one I want to get. Okay, to be fair, the, I want the lion, right? Yeah, right, right on the. I on think the, that one would work. That's the that is the one that I that I want. But like, <clears throat> like I always talk about, I'm a I'm a I'm an observationalist. You know, I get I get compensated to sort of look at the world and maybe extract out something that someone doesn't see and. And so my superpower is as a storyteller. Like I'm a pretty good storyteller. I understand how stories work. And when I hear like the just in case letter and sort of your process to getting to a letter that sort of finally works at your standard, you know, when I talk about return on courage as the book that I wrote, I thought I was writing it to position the company and then realized you know, one, I wrote the book because I need the book. And then two, I have a nine-year-old and a six-year-old, my son and daughter watching every move I'm making. And and I feel very similar to like maybe the definition of success is only like go live a courageous life. Go live a courageous adventure and, and report back. And um, so do you – when you work with clients, do you have them write a just-in-case letter? I don't. <clears throat> I don't. But that is a really interesting point. Oh, um, what I found them do is I have created a series of of what I the phases of going from a dream to a daily action, hmm. and <clears throat> I created this little 
I know everyone's just hearing this, but I created this little folding uh, vision board where you literally start to write out, you, you put a bunch of dreams on one side and then we start going across and saying, okay, now give me the vision, right? And let's, I want you to really dream about this vision. And what ends up happening for most people, and I liken it to crossing an ocean, and I will, I will give this slide on when I go out for public speaking events and I'll show the curvature of the earth. And I said, can anybody tell me if you're a six foot tall person standing, looking out at the sea, how far you can see before the curvature of the earth? That's how people yell a hundred kilometers. If you're over in Europe or, you know, in Asia, and someone would be like, Oh no, it's 50 kilometers. And <laughs> You know, in the United States, we're like, ah, it's 25 miles. It's 2.9 miles. Wow. And I use that as the metaphor because the vision, the dream, that big goal that puts you on a courageous journey, that is way past the horizon. And so how are you going to get there? And so many people go, oh, well, I got to see it first. I'm like, no, you got to believe it first. Yeah. It's not seeing is believing. It's believing is then seeing. And so okay. that's where we do that heavy lift. I, I, I'm, I'm ready to go out and do it. Let's go. Well, you are doing it, brother. And that's why I enjoy staying in touch with you. Right. We, we're motivating each other. So I got to I got to send some love your way. You had mentioned 2002 being a. a a momentous year for you and, 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 uh, or a year you remember in more ways than one. So happy 20 year anniversary. I mean, the thing that's so cool about you, Alden is like you, your, your curiosity, like always, like, I don't think you get enough credit for being the curious guy that you are. Like people think of you as like a badass Navy seal and platoon commander. They, I don't know if they know, but it's the 20th anniversary of perfect fitness, which was of course, the the creation of the perfect push-up yeah and and um you know can you believe it's been 20 years no no i can't you know officially you know perfect push-up came out in 2006 i started the journey in 2002 but you know you know deduct four years still just doesn't and, and you know what's wild the latest version of the perfect push-up we designed in 2008, launched it in 2009, and it's got 14,000 reviews on Amazon, and it's still a top-selling product and haven't changed it a lick. You know, I, let's have a conversation about perfect and perfection, mm. because I, I think on one hand, I'm definitely in the camp of practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. Yep. But on the other hand, I kind of feel like perfection is is public enemy number one of progress, right? Like to your point, that daunting reality of the 2.9 miles that I can see, but it's going to be miles and miles beyond that. But you got to go the first 2.9, yep. right? And it's going to get messy. So like, do you, what's your take on the, on the concept of perfection? And it feels like a great term for marketing when you're marketing a product like the perfect push-up. Mm -hmm. but I mean, look, you perfected this push-up. So like, what's your, where, where are you on this concept? If you were to look at the brand perfect, it has a red period at the end. 
And we were very sensitive to the idea that perfection is never available to us. It's always a journey. And the idea was when you said perfect, it's a declarative statement. Oh, perfect. This will be the thing that will help me move to the next step. And that's the idea is that the only thing about perfect is the pursuit of getting better and always striving to have perfect persistence. So that's what we were after. And we were not after like this. Could we make the perfect push up better? And now I no longer own the company. Absolutely. There's, there's always another way to do something better, right? New technology, new, new materials. Like I have a host of new ideas that I'd love to have put in there, but for now it's a declarative statement. Perfect. Oh, that's perfect for me. I like that. Yeah. So, Hey, let's go back to my original confusing question, Hmm. which is Hmm. how does, when does little Alden Mills who has asthma, Mm -hmm. how old are you? Where'd you grow up? Mm -hmm. Turn into like, you know what? I want to, I want to go to the Academy and then I want to be a Navy SEAL. And, and how much of that was messy versus you kind of knew what you wanted to be when you wanted to be it. Oh, I, I came out of the womb and said, Oh, I want to go to the Naval Academy. I want to be the captain of the crew. I'm going to try out for the Olympics and then go to SEAL team. That's exactly what I was going to do. Right. <laughs> Not even close. And this concludes. I wanted the to be a stuntman. <laughs> you know, I, you, you'd, you'd watch Lee majors in the fall guy or watch $6 million man and be like, Oh, I want to be that. No, the, uh, the story really starts when I'm 12. I, had to get a spinal tap in the middle of the night. Doctors thought I had spinal meningitis because I had been bedridden for so long. What city? Ah, central Massachusetts in a small little town called Southbridge. Uh, small town, mill town, hour west of Boston, and nondescript town, right? And once they performed the spinal tap and realized because I had been having pneumonia constantly and I had been bedridden for literally weeks. Uh, They realized I didn't have that, but they also realized, Hey, you got to go to the big city of Wista, Wista, Massachusetts, which is 25 minutes away. And there I met a pulmonologist and I walked into his office and his office looked like a laboratory and the pulmonologist looked like an older Danny DeVito, right? White wispy hair, shiny bald cap, but thick Coke bottle glasses. And his facial expression looked like he was constantly smelling sour milk, right? His, his all face was all screwed up and he had that nasally New England accent of, all right, I need you to come over here and blow in this tube. Keep that ping pong ball right there. And they're okay. Now inhale. Right. And so he was going around and he's doing all these metrics, putting it on charts. And then after a while he held his hand up and I can remember him holding the hand up going, all right, I see what the problem is here. Mrs. Mills, come over here to the table. I'm going to tell you what the problem is with your son. He was talking to my mom, not me. And I, you know, I came over with him and he goes, all right, you see this chart here? This is an, and he shows this line that goes from the bottom left to the top right. He goes, this is a normal 12 year old sized lungs. Your son is below the line a lot. He's been born with smaller than average size lungs. 
Next chart. And you see this one? This is his airway. This is the force of his airway. And you see below this line, he's way down here. You know why? Because he's got asthma. <laughs> so there's a couple of things we got to do here. Number one, we're going to give him medicine. He's going to be on medicine for the rest of his life. Number two, he needs to lead a less active lifestyle. I suggest the game of chess. <laughs> and I, Ryan, I'm not kidding you. I hear the game of chess and it, and it still rings in my ear. I, my chin drops to my chest. My body posture totally changes into defeated motion. Mom sees it immediately, taps me on the shoulder and goes, why don't you go wait in the lobby? I'm going to talk to the good doctor from here. Okay, mom. I had to go out there and I'm having a full pity party. Tears coming down. I remember making puddles and on this brown linoleum floor. She comes out in the offensive position, hands on her hips, kicks my foot. What's wrong with you? I'm like, mom, chess. I'm terrible at checkers. How am I going to learn chess? Right. And but Ryan, I'd already gone there. I was already there and accepted my fate. And she had these long French cuticle nails that had been filed. And for getting my attention in moments like this, she drops to a knee, digs them into my forearm. She goes, now you listen to me. Nobody defines what you can do, but you. Do you hear me? I'll get you that medicine, but you have to decide what you can do. Okay, okay. Say it back to me. <laughs> No, I just wanted her to release. I didn't get it. I didn't get it that day. I didn't get it that week. But eventually got it enough to try out for the YBA at YMCA, which was my where I learned to swim and play basketball. And the only basket I ever scored was for the opposite team. I was just so excited I got the ball. How old were you? Still 12. <laughs> and then she'd be like, well, you scored. Good for you. Go try another sport. You know, and and I I sucked at ball sports like and like hockey. I scored against my own team. I scored against my own team in soccer because I was a defender and I accidentally kicked it into our goal. I was the goalie for lacrosse, scored against our team there. Right. All these different sports. I ended up scoring like I have four different sports that I scored against my own team on. Did you ever launch stoppable teams first? You could have yeah, no kidding, right? And then I found this sport because I grew up on the water and I saw these eight people rowing by and I was like, oh, that is a cool sport. I could do that. I like that. I like being on the water. I like the idea. No high point scorer, no MVP, just eight people in unison. And that's, but by that point, I had been given enough courage by my parents to keep trying. Hmm. And that to me was the message that I really wanted to get across when I was trying to write these just in case letters that became the book, be unstoppable. And it ended up becoming a parable about someone just keep trying, right? The persistence. And I turned the parable into being a ship's captain and leaving and going across that ocean. That's what every, everything starts with, right? you got to have the courage to try. So Alden, when you're 12, and maybe this is an unfair like ask to go back, but look, there's absolutely stories that I believed about myself. And 
that was like it was the end. There was the the story was in paint. It was in pen. There was no pencil. Yeah. And like this story is one of those like a human that has authority. Granted, he looked like Devito is telling you, "Here's your bar for success." Yeah, and showing you facts, right? It, it, showing you these lines in these charts. Like I can still see them in my head, and my mom like jumped on it. I was like, get, get out of this room. I'll talk to him from here. And like, so like it, this moment is seared. It's stained on your brain. Like, do you remember, even with your mom, who's telling you like, shake, shake it and out of you. Yeah. When do you really feel that you were like, oh, oh, okay. Wait a minute. I'm the captain of this ship. I'm, it's up to me. Like, was there a moment, uh, you know, or like was it right away was it 3 years was it rowing it was rowing and it so i was 12 when it started and i show up i got sent to a boarding school uh in ninth grade and it was when i was in ninth grade that i started to figure out yeah okay i'm so i mean i'm taking the asthma medication but i was like i i could i could do this i want to do this and I often talk to my clients about these two basic fears, the fear of staying put and the fear of going forward. And until the fear of staying put is greater than the fear of going forward, we're going to stay put. And I just got to this point where I'm like, I don't want to be here. I want to be in that boat. I don't care what it takes. I will get there. And that's when the lights really started to click for me. And then a cascading series of events occurred from rowing. So in your mind, is this a, I assume it's a, you feel like it's a muscle. Like the more you do it, right. I mean, you got to definitely, definitely think of persistence as a muscle. All right. So get me past practice. And where, how did like the Naval Academy show up for you? Thought I was going to go to Brown. Brown at the time was the top dog. Harvard wouldn't want to talk to me. You have to remember this was rowing, right? So it was East Coast and it was all these Ivies. And uh, Brown dropped me at the 11th hour. And uh, they brought in some guy from overseas, which they do a lot now. And I... I had I had applied to the Naval Academy, but I had gotten a second alternate nomination. We didn't have any political connections, but I got this one from Representative Bowen out in the western portions of Massachusetts. And I I called the coach. And what the reason I did that, and this is a very superficial idea in the beginning, was uh, I just want to go to a school that beats Harvard. How do I beat Harvard? It was Brown, then Navy, and so. I called Navy up and I was like, you know, I, I could be open to serving. I like this idea. It's a different path. And, but I wasn't the kid who had like Navy seal posters or, Oh, every Halloween I want to wear camis. Like that wasn't me at all. GI Joe again. Here we yeah, go. Yeah, No. <laughs> um, and so Navy took me with open arms. And you rode there. And I rode there. I became the captain of the plebe crew, the freshman crew, and then the captain of the um, heavyweight crew. We beat Harvard. Hey, and uh, I got picked up to uh, try out for the Olympic team. 
let me ask you this. How often, like, do you feel like, I mean, I'm, I, I'll admit my humanness, you know, like I'm, I'm messy. I try to like embrace it all and talk about it. There have been times when, you know, I was cut or I didn't get my first choice. And I, I mean, now I'm grateful for it because I like, I yeah. channeled, I channeled all that and I harnessed all that. And man, I had a huge chip. I had a huge trip. It, it didn't mean I didn't have fear and I wasn't stubborn and all that stuff. But like, do you, do you feel like the Brown doing what Brown did? You're like, oh, okay. I'm going to store this away. Like I'm going to use this. At the beginning, I had the pity party for myself, right? I was still young and I didn't know how to embrace defeat obstacles. I didn't know how to realize that, oh my God, the struggle gives me the strength. The friction gives me the forward progress. The obstacle is the way like, oh, that was a gift. Like you didn't get that then. And one of the greatest things that I work with with clients is helping them put on a new filter saying, oh, let's get curious about this because this is the opportunity. This is how the opportunity comes wrapped. It comes wrapped as an obstacle. So you tried you tried out or you were on the Olympic? No, I tried. I got I got invited to try out. Um and I was really thinking hard about it. And I spent the summer preparing for it. And then the Navy said, Hey, we'll support you on this, but you have to give up your spot at SEAL training. Um, I'm not implying I would have made the team, um, but I would have given it a good shot. I heard that the, the Olympic team was four Harvard guys and four Brown guys. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't, I couldn't resist. All right. So, so yeah, talk to me about that moment. The seal opportunity shows up. And again, is this just like another example of sometimes it's not till you're that close to the 2.9 miles that you're like, Oh shit, I could be a, I, I could be a Navy seal. Like what does that entail? What does that even mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, Ryan. I, I find I have these inflection points where I'm at, let's pretend being an Olympian is you are, you're 99% great at your craft and getting invited to the Olympic camp means you're 92% great at your craft, right? Still an A. A minus. A minus, still an A. Even if it were a B plus, I'd be like, you know what? To get that next piece, I don't know if I really want to work that much harder. And I've done so many great things in rowing. Maybe it's time to hold it, hang it up, and let's go start the next chapter and see how far we can get. And, and basically, I can tell you that storyline again and again and again, where for me, this is Alden speaking, I don't need to be A+. plus. Not in those things. The most recent transition, and I would say I was probably an A, an A in creating products because I spent 14 years doing that. Uh, and then I just got burned out. And I was like, you know, I, I need to do this transition. Where do I want to move and really be A plus? And, and that 
is the transition I've done now over the last you know, 10 years. I have an unfair question, and this wasn't a question I was expecting to ask, but I, and I could tell you that if I'm unhappy anywhere right now, because I'm trying to design a life that, you know, that brings Absolutely. me joy, I can monetize, yeah. I can help people, I, there's freedom. And, you know, you're, the, you're like, you're the unstoppable teams guy, right? But do you feel like, how hard is it for you to always have to like swoop in and swoop out of teams versus building a team? You know, I, I feel very alone. Like that's the thing I miss the most. I feel alone. Cause I'm like, uh, you know, like this, the last two weeks was a great example. You're speaking in a big stage, one place you're talking to Deloitte's team. The next you're, you're zipping around, but you're not, you're never part of, I feel like I'm never part of their team. I'm trying to like give them what they need to be better. And then it's like, I love you guys. I'm here if you need me. I'm going back to the warm weather in California. Do you, do you struggle with that at all? Do you feel that at all? Hell yeah. That's why we stay connected. Like I look at you as an external teammate, like, Hey Ryan, what are you working on? Let me show you what, what I'm working on. You know, I, I miss that camaraderie without question. Um, but I will say part of the design that I've worked on for me has been, I really enjoy the public speaking, but it's like sugar. It's like sugar. You get out there, you give this speech, everyone gets fired up. You feel like you've made an impact. And then you walk off stage. You get a few data boys, you get some emails, and then you literally have a post event depression. Mm -hmm. like, well, well, now what? That that was it. Like, and you you can feel that connection, right? When you when you've made that connection with audience, it feels it's intoxicating for them and for you. And then I was like, I I've got to figure out a way to not just have sugar hits. Where's the protein? Hmm. And the protein comes into the coaching. And that's where I've really enjoyed building out these, what I call swim buddy relationships that, you know, some of these coaching uh, swim buddies, I've had one for now for four years. And it's like, oh, no, we stay together. And, and I've watched what's happened. And it's, it is so fulfilling to help be on their journey together and help them shift their filter and help them be unstoppable at going after, going after their dreams that they didn't originally think they could do like that. That fulfills me. Yeah. It's funny. I, and again, I didn't think I'd get into the coaching space at all in the last probably 15 months. It's here we go. Right. Like trickle, 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 trickle. And, yeah. and I feel like I'm like, I feel like I'm their friend. Like, I, I don't think it's devious. Like I would like this. I like the people I'm working with. I want, Oh, that's a prerequisite. I interview them and be like, Hmm, is that somebody like I could, would I be a friend with this person? Could I just get along with this person? All right. So I'm not crazy that it's no, okay. Okay, no, good. no. Cause it's, it's gotta be mutually beneficial for both sides. And you want to be your authentic self because you're going to help them be their authentic self. Cause that's where the magic is. And people over the years, you know, typically I end up working with people between 45 and 55. And I talk about that transition of their life is that I think of it like a crustacean. 
like a crab. Now, mind you, I grew up in the summer <laughs> catching crabs. And I thought it was a lobster, crabs. like a lobster. Yeah, a lobster, right? But what happens to a crustacean? They molt. And they molt because the inner body is just getting constricted by the old outer shell. And that's what I think of for some people who are self-aware enough for like, hey, something's off here. What I used to be doing isn't as enjoyable anymore. Like, what, what am I missing? And that molting process is what I like to help them through. And that's where you get congruency, the congruency between their head, their thoughts, their heart, their feelings, and their gut, their desires. And when we can get congruency through those three intelligence centers, then they're going to be unstoppable at whatever it is they want to go after. See, this story reminds me why, like, I love you so much. So I talk, look, I'm a Maryland guy, you know, crab cakes. We're crabs, football. baby. You know, that's what we do, right? And so, yeah. But I, I, had a, I have a story, what a surprise, about how do you climb the corporate ladder is be like a crab. Right. Crabs walk left to right. They don't they don't go up and down. They go left to right and like make friends with everybody that's on the left and the right of you, because together, when it's finally time to get where you need to go, at least you'll have some allies in the room and you and you do it together. All right. Now, I want to get back to the Navy SEAL commentary. But before I do, I promised my six year old daughter I was telling her about Alden Mills, who I'm interviewing. She's like I said, her name's Mackenzie. And I'm like, do you want me to ask Alden any questions for you? And she said, yes. Okay, what's what was the question? And you know, obviously, I mentioned you're a Navy SEAL. And I was like, Navy SEALs protect people. And obviously, her first question was, but does he protect SEALs? Does he protect animals too? Do you protect animals as well? Alden Mills definitely protects animals. You can tell her, I grew up on a farm. My grandfather was a large animal vet. The only animals I will not protect are the ones that I want to eat. <laughs> now, I will tell you that I, I'm not a huge hunter, but I do like doing upland game. I like going to shoot birds and I'll eat those. I'll but leave that part out for my daughter. Yeah, she leave that part out. Um, <laughs> But we always have, you know, tell her we had three straight cats that were feeding and we got our Labrador. We've always has, we always have a dog with us. So, you know, we definitely protect the animals. Let her know that. All right. So Navy SEAL, like talk, talk me through just the mental prep for you to go and say, yeah, I want to, I, I want to go do this. I want to go see if I, was it was, I want to go see if I can do this or is I want to go do this. I think it was both. I was like, I'm going to do this, but I wonder if I can do it. And like, take yeah. us back. Like, what's it like? Well, I remember uh, walking down to class and we had this Navy SEAL who had more medals than God. You could barely see his trident. It's way underneath here. He's one of the founding members of SEAL Team 6. He has this unregulated mustache coming down the sides. And he's like, hey, Mills, you ever think about trying out for SEAL Team? And I was like, yeah, I don't know. It's just kind of, I'm thinking about it. You know, what do they do? And he goes, uh, you ever been bullied before? Now, 
my mom used to let my hair grow really long and that was curly and people used to call me Shirley Temple and I got bullied all the time and I told him I was like yeah as a matter of fact there was this time and he put his hand up and he goes I just asked you you've been bullied I don't want to hear the stories <laughs> I'm like oh okay he goes well that's what we do we go around the world and we knock back bullies you're interested come try out and I always remember that and I was like you know I think I could get my head around that I really like helping out the ones that uh can't stand up for themselves or they're not strong enough. Right. And bullying, which I had been bullied a lot because I was a big kid and this fourth graders picking on the first grader. And that was another stain on the brain mm. has never left me. Yeah. And that was the first position where I was like, okay, I just got a purpose of why I think I can make it through this. Mm. So I figured out a why. And then my dad and I loaded up our little Volkswagen. We drove across country together, drops me off. I'd never been to San Diego. I couldn't believe my eyes on the Hotel Dell and this beautiful Orange Avenue street. I'm like, Dad, we got to be in the wrong place. He's like, we're definitely in the right place. <laughs> and and my eyes just bug eyed like, wow, the San Diego place is amazing. Like I, I was just so stoked for it. <laughs> And, and then the training started, and that's when the real questions started come knocking. And, you know, it's a technique that I now use with a lot of my coaching clients because people go, well, how'd you get through that? And they're like, well, first of all, I got through it. It's sometimes I got through it one breath at a time. Other times I got through it one exercise at a time, but I never got through it by thinking, how many more things do I have to do? It was just, I, you learned the focus of just focus on the next step, focus on the next breath. Can I do one more? Can I take one more? Can I do you know, whatever it was? And then one of those days where the demons of doubt came knocking and you're like, I don't think I can do this. I would create outcome movies in my head. And I remember this outcome movie of, okay, what's it like if I go ring that bell? What happens? Oh, I got to call my parents and tell them I quit. Oh, then I got to go back to my town and I got to go deal with all these chumps who told me I couldn't do it anyhow. And now I'm going to have to hear those voices for the rest of my life. And then what happens when I'm going to be a father and I have kids and I have to tell them, don't do what dad did. And then what about when they bring their kids and I'm the grandfather, right? Boom. That outcome movie, which took all about 3.6 seconds. Nope. I can go another step. I'm not going to ring that bell. I am not going to star in that movie. Well, I love, I love that. I think speculation deservedly gets a bad rap for most people. Yeah. Because and maybe it is directly connected to speed of time. Like how much time do you speculate? But like, to your point, if a thousand thoughts happen in five seconds, one, one thousand, two, one thousand, and then you're back in the moment. Yeah. That's a, a good way speculation can work. And I kind of also went back to your commentary of like fear of staying put versus fear of moving, going forward. Like you kind of don't have a choice. Like you have, you have to stay put. You just have to stay in the moment and stay in the now. And is that, I mean, I guess when you're in it and it's back then, maybe you're not thinking that way or you, or is it like you said, just one breath, just one exercise, just get to the next exercise. 
Yeah. And then it, it's a, that's how I would treat it. And when things got really, really hard, like Ryan, I got so cold on Monday night of hell week and hell week is this period of time from a Sunday to a Friday, they give you three hours of sleep for the entire week. Right. They're just, and I'm the class leader and I got so cold that I'm dry heaving because my stomach and my abs have totally cramped and they will get you out of the water. They'll literally open you up and be like, all right, start doing some squats. We got to get the blood flowing for you. And like, we're, we're dry heaving. I mean, it was just, everything is just, you're all cramped up. I'm like, I have never been this cold in my life. What? Oh, I have hypothermia. What? What? I'm like, am I going to die? You know, you start getting there and then you have to get to that point where you're like, you know what you got it. I, and I talk about this in unstoppable teams, my second book, you have these two voices. I call them the whiner and the whisperer. And the whiner is just on full volume. Just, are, do you know what you're doing? Are you crazy? You have asthma. You shouldn't even be here. You're, of course, you're going to fail. Blah, 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 blah. And then the whisperer is like, what would you rather do? Die or quit? And you get to that point where you're like, you know what? You're right. You're just going to have to kill me. Um, Once you get there, then, then nobody quits. First of all, is this in, is this you have this in your second book, The Whisper and the Whiner? Yeah, I I would like to have that in in my next book. So the one of the books that I, that I'm working on with the partner is called The Two Use, and the whole idea is like we're basically two people. Now people don't think about it because we're unconsciously going through life and we're sometimes get robotic, but I call it the warrior and the warrior. Mm. Mm, right, and, I like that. And we're and we're doing this where they're together, yeah. Right? And we we haven't untangled them. So then the warrior, by the way, is not an asshole. The warrior is doing what the warrior is supposed to do. It's like yeah. watch out for that. Maybe don't say that. Hey, I have an idea. That stove is hot, right? Right. And it's it's keeping you safe. It's ex- exactly. And I think in some ways the whiner, the whiner is the warrier. Correct. Without right? Without, but, without question. And the whisper is the warrior. And my hope is that, like, you know what? In the fire of your life, right, The that that yeah. commander is the warrior. The commander is, resp- hey, hey, captain, right? You probably have a better because you're the military. I'm with you. I'm with you. Okay. Hey, Keep captain, uh, this is real. I see you, warrior, says the warrior, and we're not going to do that. But I acknowledge that fear, right? Right. And so I love that. I, I will absolutely figure out a way to be like, oh, this great talks about. Right, yeah, let's do, let's do it. I, I, I love your, I, you know, I also like, I love using alliteration. On yeah, things, me too. Right? You want to you use things that people can remember. It's one thing to have the content. It's a totally different thing to make the content memorable enough that they will use and take action on. That to me is the magic when you coaching, when you're on stage, when you're leading anybody who's out there leading, like it's great that you have a seven step process, but if nobody can remember those steps, it does not matter. Yeah. I, again, spend your time helping people remember what they are. Take the next step and get creative enough to turn those seven steps into an acronym like 
inspire. Mm. Like listen, like change, like trust, clear. Those are all acronyms I've created to help people and say, you know, you've got, I need you to remember these steps, but remember them for what they're supposed to be for. Yeah. Love it. Simpatico, my friend, you know, again, it's, it's not about hearing myself talk. I'm not here to share knowledge. It's uh, I'm here to transfer knowledge. Like how do you actually do that? So obviously, well, take me to like, so hell week. So Friday night is the night. No, uh, Sunday night they start. Friday afternoon you end. And you're like, are you con- are you talking to your teammates at this point? Going, I think it's Friday. Do you know it's Friday? Oh, you know it's Friday. And yeah. are you like, whatever? They, they, you, you know you, that you do know. You're not allowed to wear a watch, and obviously, you know, they don't have a phone or anything like that. But yeah, um, they will try and confuse you, but you figure it out. How many? Uh, we're in your program. We started 122. By the end of Hell Week, we were down to 18. 18. Yeah, one officer and 17 enlisted. Who got the closest but didn't make it? Was there anyone on on that last day or the last couple days? Typically, and this was typical for our class, when we got to see sunrise Wednesday morning, no one else quit. And no one else got medically dropped. Sometimes you get medically dropped towards the end of it. Um, uh, or medically rolled forward. If they like you, you're medically dropped. If they don't, right? There's some subjectiveness. To it. Um, I mean, obviously you like this enough. Well, first of all, kid, do you remember the feeling? Like when they're fine? Like, what do they say? What did they, were they like, pack up your shit, you did it, you're done? Or like... Well, Hell Week is only the six week of training. So then you've got 22 more weeks afterwards. Oh, I hate that. It's in the middle. It's like near the beginning. Oh, it's the very beginning. Yeah. Is this their way of being like, please don't waste our time? Like, exactly. Yeah. And now they've moved Hell Week up even earlier. They want it. They want to call the class as quickly as possible because it takes a lot of manpower to get people to get trained up and get them to then be a candidate. When you finish BUDS, basic underwater demolition seal training, you're not a seal. You're a candidate. Uh, and, and and your brain with, like you said, the asthma, the asthma effect, as we will call it. Yeah. Um, how often did that play in your mind? Well, it, it came to a head. In second phase, SEAL team training is broken into three phases, very creatively called first phase, second phase, and third phase. Second phase is dive phase, and we were out training for this final exam swim, which is a a five-and-a-half-mile swim. And we were doing a three-mile swim, and my lungs started filling up with blood. And I, I literally was drowning in my own blood. I got pulled out of the water, got taken to the emergency services that they have there. Uh, They started doing blood work on me. They then went to my room. They found the medicine. They busted me. They put a piece of paper in front of me and said, Mr. Mills, you know, you're an asthmatic. We know this medicine. You're out. 
sign this document. It's amazing you got as far as you did. You will always be able to say you made it through Hell Week. Congratulations. Now it's time to leave. And I thought about that. I was like, yeah, they're kind of right. Like I made it through Hell Week. Good on me. Like I, I could kind of walk away with some honor, right? And I really thought about it for about 10 seconds. <laughs> and I was like, no, I'm not an asthmatic. And like, then why are you taking this medicine? And I'm like, just to help me open my airways to be more performance minded. People do lots of different things, by the way, like that. Um, you know, the, the guys going through today take Viagra because they want to have their blood vessels open for more blood flow. Um, so there's all kinds of little concoctions that you're always trying to take. And they're like, you are out of this class. You're going to go over to Balboa Island. We're going to put you through a full medical evaluation. We're going to prove to you that you have asthma. So they pulled me out of the class, which meant I had to go back to the beginning of SEAL training right after Hell Week, which means I had to go back seven weeks, Wow, which sucked. You have to imagine, like, just one day is like a dog year. And I got to go seven weeks back. I'm like, oh, that was painful. And I had to go to another class because I'd been really bonded with this class through Hell Week. And they put me through this thing called a methacholine challenge. And they put you in a box that's airtight and they pump it full of mist in a mask. And I passed it. How'd you do it? I cheated. <laughs> uh, I cheated. And I, so that's the short answer. And the way I cheated was the petty officer who's in charge of giving the test had to turn his back to look at the misting button and the readouts took the mask off quickly when the mist came out and then I would inhale gently. And then when I had to take the mist, I gave the biggest breath of my life. And they're like, Oh my gosh, your breath got better with the methacholine. And okay. So that's not my proudest moment, right? I, I did cheat. What I then did is I had to surrender. So I got through the test, but that was not the real piece that I had to deal with. What I really had to deal with was I had been taking asthma medication now for 10 years. I'm 22 years old. I still had the story, the narrative in my head. I need this. And that's where I really discovered faith. And the faith I refer to when I talk to clients is the first definition in the dictionary. And that is having 100% confidence in someone or something other than yourself. Uh, the second one is about religious doctrine. So, you know, pick whatever power you want to believe in. But I, I prayed and I just said, you know, I'm going to stop taking this medicine. If this is meant to be, it's meant to be. And I am going to give full faith in a higher power other than myself. And let's see where we go. Man, we need more time. <laughs> and you're going to have to come back on and share some more. That's a, It's an important leadership. You know, I'm, I'm writing this new book and I talk about these leadership roles. And one of the most important leadership roles is learning how to follow. 
And what I mean follow is to have faith in someone or something other than yourself. Once you have that and have experienced it, it opens up an entirely new it opens up an entirely new bucket of courage for you that you didn't have before. Because now you don't have to control everything. Now you just like, you know what? I've got to let go of these things and just focus on the things I can control. I mean, this, what I'm about to share is not to hear myself talk. It's more to, to share how aligned you and I are. Like I, I always say courage my definition of courage is knowledge plus faith plus action. And it has to be all three of those components or it's something else, right? Knowledge and faith without actions, paralysis and faith and action without knowledge is reckless. And then knowledge and action without faith is probably status quo. It's safe. And that's okay. Not for me, but that's okay for like, if you're not looking to do uh, something meaningful and courageous in this life, but faith is a, it is the difference. It's, and that, I, I mean, you know, this is where I wish we did have video because I'm nodding along when you're talking about faith is about following something, even if you can't see it, what's around the corner, what's your relationship to a higher power. I, I can't explain why still I'm on this journey to help other people be more courageous. And just how you say you wish a hundred million people, hundred million people were more unstoppable. That's how I feel about Courage. If I could teach people to be more courageous, they're going to be happier. By the way, it's like it's a a, a no brainer. Oh yeah, and they're going to inspire more people. And just imagine, you know, the hundred million it gets you to one percent. If we assume, okay, over my lifetime, there's a ten billion people on the planet. If we could get one percent, just one percent, to set the example around the world, like, hey, we can do this. Imagine the force multiplying effect. Hmm. All right, take us home on this, Alden, um, on the spirit of the importance of being unstoppable. And, and I don't mean this from a business sense. I mean, like, in your mind, when you convince yourself that you're telling stories that's stopping you until you have a story that sees you can do something, like, what is the power of being unstoppable? Like, what is the ultimate sort of takeaway in your mind? When you're able to answer the question, what would I do if I knew I wouldn't fail? And say, oh my gosh, I'm doing it. You know how many times you ask people that question and they come up with all these things that they would love to be doing, but they're not doing, but they could be. And then all of a sudden they realize I'm on my path now. Like I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. And I am creating this life that is so rich in experiences and struggle. And all this requires me to have the faith, the action and seek the knowledge constantly. You know, I love that. And that's when you and I first met and you tell me about that. Like that is what it means to be unstoppable is that they're only opportunities. They're not obstacles out there. And I am going after and doing it. And what that means is unstoppable is a choice. And I'm waking up every day and I'm making the choice to go live my dreams. Here's the choice. Alden Mills, you're the man. Thanks for joining us today, buddy. It's an honor. Keep going, brother. I'm trying. You too. 